Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. Now let's listen to Pastor Dave Crocker. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning after a uh, couple of weeks away. We, uh, we had a, a great holiday as, as a family, and I even managed to sneak back to New Zealand for a few days, which was great. Hadn't seen mum in a while, and you know, it's important to do that every so often. So I jumped on a plane last minute and took off and... I sent my brother a text, actually. He pastors a great church in Christchurch. and said, hey, mate, I'm coming. Can you put me up for a week? He said, yeah, absolutely. And then so I booked the flights, and then he sends me a text. Oh, but I'm flying out to Thailand on Tuesday. So I was like, thanks, mate. So I'm flying all the way to New Zealand to see you, and two days later, you're jumping on a plane and disappearing. But anyway, it was great to see them and great uh, to be back. Uh, I kind of missed you guys. Well, some of you I missed. Um, uh, it was great to be back. Hey, our theme at the moment that, that we've been talking about this year is finding true north. Hopefully, if you've been around for a little while, it's starting to make a little bit of sense to you by now. We're talking about centering our lives on God. It's about understanding that, that God has shaped us and moulded us and created us and that there's a direction for our lives. And when we make the right kind of decisions, they're decisions that we make based on the Word of God and based on the kind of things we understand about who God is. And as part of that, I started a series a wee while ago now called Discover. That if we're going to live a Christ-centered life, there's some things we need to discover. And part of that discovery, I began talking about purpose. And this is actually the, the third part of, of my uh, mini-series on discovering purpose. The premise is actually quite simple, but it's quite profound. In order to discover how God has wired us for the future, we must examine our lives by looking at our past. That we don't arrive with our, our occupation or our purpose for life tattooed on our chest. There's no user guide that comes with each person. And as we go through life, we look back at those moments where things went really well for us, where we had an incredible amount of success that seemed to come easy, where we were doing well and enjoying it in the process. I refer to those moments as being in our sweet spot. And in our sweet spot, things tend to come a bit easier than other times of our life. And we can have extraordinary results when we are living and dwelling in our sweet spot. This is not something that, that pastors preach about just to kind of get people onto rosters. You know, God's got a purpose for you and your purpose is to help us do this. That's a good outcome. But it's not why we preach these things. In fact, the Bible is actually pretty clear on this sort of stuff. Ephesians 2.10, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. I like how the Living Bible says the same verse. It is God Himself who made us what we are and given us new lives from Jesus Christ. And long ago, long ages ago, he planned that we should spend these lives in helping others. When I was youth pastoring and even pastoring, oh, there's a question I get a lot. How do I know what God 
God's purposes for my life. Have you ever asked that question? How do I know what I'm supposed to do with my life? What's God's plan and purpose for my life? Well, the good news for you is I've discovered it. It's easy. Love God and love people. That's why we've made it our, our mission, love God, love people. Well, we've, we've kept it focused there because actually the question isn't what's God's purpose for my life because that's already established. The question we're really asking is how do I work that out in context of my world? How do I work out this loving God and loving people bit in context of the life that I live? What does that look like? That's really the question. Because at its core, what you were designed to do, what I'm designed to do is love God and love people. But how I go about that most likely is very different to how you go about that. I, I think that's incredibly freeing for us because it takes the whole mystery of why we're here away and it allows us to be who God's created us to be. There's no one way of doing it. I've got a different personality and, and gift set and skills to just about everybody in the room. I'm a different kind of person. You're a different person. If you could do all that I can do, there's no point for me. But God has created me, gifted me and made me unique. So today I want to talk about, in the context of purpose, two things that can torpedo our purpose. Two things that if they become present in our life can actually be destructive for the purposes of God in your world. I could have probably picked a whole lot, but I've just picked two for this morning. The first one I want to talk about is greed. Because greed can seduce us from our sweet spot. Greed is a subtle mistress and it seduces us in two ways. There's two lies that we can buy into. And they're both equally destructive. The first lie is that we don't have enough. And the second lie is that what we have is not good enough. Let me illustrate it with two stories this morning. Firstly, we don't have enough. A businessman bought popcorn from an old street vendor every day after lunch. One day he arrived to find that the man was closing up his stand at noon. Is something wrong? The businessman asked. A smile wrinkled the, wrinkled the seller's leathery face. He says, by no means, all is well. Then why are you closing your popcorn stand? So I can go to my house, sit on my porch and sip tea with my wife. The businessman objected, but the day is still young. You can still sell. He says, there's no need to. I've made enough money for today. The businessman says, enough? That's absurd. You should keep working. The old man stopped and stared at the businessman and he said, well, why should I keep working? He says, to sell more popcorn. And why should I sell more popcorn? Well, because the more popcorn you sell, the more money you can make. The more money you can make, the richer you are. And the richer you are, the more popcorn stands you can buy. The more popcorn stands you can buy, the more peddlers will sell your product and the richer you will become. And when you have enough, you can stop working, sell your popcorn stands, stay home and sit on the porch with your wife and drink tea. The old man smiled at him and said, I can do that today, so I guess I have enough. Sometimes our drive for more, more money, more significance, more influence, more opportunity can cause us to miss the significance of what we have now. Greed has a growing stomach. Feed it and we risk losing purpose. Greed can seduce us out of our sweet spot. You've seen it happen. A different popcorn peddler has one stand and one job and he does both with incredible skill. But though his daily sales meet his needs, they don't meet his tastes. 
And so to make more money, he buys more stands. And then in order to supervise those stands, he abandons his own. And the street vendor no longer sells, he manages, which is fine if he is made to manage. But suppose he was made to sell. And in the effort to get more, he swaps the open street and rivers of people for four walls and a desk. Will he give up more than he has gained? I've seen it in education. Some of the best and most successful teachers are often taken out of the classroom and given a management role. And for some, that is the best option. But for some of the teachers that I know, when that happens to them, it destroys their joy in teaching. Sometimes the things that make us the most successful, that give us the greatest joy, are lost in advancement or the desire for the next step or greater reward or more influence. When I reflected on this, I realised that pastors are pretty susceptible to this kind of thing as well. Uh, The church world is full of amazing pastors who were so good as as an associate. They absolutely killed it in the 2IC role and they in fact were so successful at what they did that they thought, you know what, I could run a church myself. And they gave up being an associate and went and took on a church. And it nearly killed them and nearly kills the church because they were never made to do that. And it can take many, many years to discover that actually God hasn't wired me like this and I was seeking more that wasn't mine to take. And the second thought was, that what we have isn't good enough. I read a story of a farmer who grew really discontent with his farm. He, he griped about the lake on his property always needing to be stocked and managed. There were hills all over his roads forcing him to drive up and down. And those fat cows lumbered through his pastures. All the fencing and the feeding, what a headache it was for him. So he decided to sell the place and move somewhere nice. So he rings a real estate agent and he enlists their help and a few days later the agent rings and said I've put the advert together I want your approval before he goes ahead so she read the ad to the farmer and it described a lovely farm in an ideal location quiet and peaceful contoured with rolling hills carpeted with soft meadows nourished by a fresh lake and blessed with well-bred livestock the farmer said read that ad to me again after hearing it a second time he said I've changed my mind I'm not going to sell I've been looking for a place like that my whole life Sometimes we don't realise what we really have. Sometimes the desire for more or for different clouds our view of what is actually right in front of us. And greed can make us make poor decisions, poor choices. It's like the person who has a perfectly fine house that meets all their needs that they can afford, but then they sell that house to buy something nicer because they want people to see them in a different way. They want the nicer, the shiny, the new, and they give up the lifestyle they could afford and buy one that they can't afford, and they pay a high price for it. Greed can seduce us from our sweet spot. The Apostle Paul would have applauded both the farmer and the popcorn seller Because he'd learned the same lessons. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11 it says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Not necessarily satisfied. Doesn't say that Paul was satisfied. He still was pushing for a bigger future. He was still pushing to do the things of God and see more and accomplish more. But he'd learnt that whatever place I'm in, whatever I have going in my world, I am going to be content with what is in front of me. 
And that leads me to my second and final thought for today. We need to take big risks for God. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 in the message said, God doesn't want us to be shy with his gifts, but bold and loving and sensible. I love that verse. God doesn't want us to be shy with his gifts, the gifts that he's placed in us. God actually wants us to use. I remember when I got my first real job, uh, I did a milk run. And I don't know the history of milk runs in Australia. You used to do that milk delivery, like pushing trolleys and bottles. and Yep. You didn't personally do that? Okay, I can imagine you wouldn't personally do that. So that was, that wasn't a thing. You milk the cows, that's right. So that was my first job. And I was 12 year old and, and I lived in Dunedin at the time in, in South Island of New Zealand. And, and my milk run was up and down the hills. And, and that, that was tough, pushing this trolley loaded with milk bottles up and down these hills. And, and I, I really didn't enjoy the job at all because my boss was awful. He was so grumpy all the time and we never seemed to be able to run fast enough or deliver quick enough to keep him happy. And man, he had a temper. I remember the first time I had an accident pushing my milk trolley up a hill. It was wet and I slipped. And I've started sliding down on my hands and knees and I'm cut and, and bleeding and I'm messed up. And all I was worried about were the 20 bottles of milk that I'd broken and what this guy was going to say to me. And he went nuts. He didn't have to pay for it because it was my first one. But if he said if I did it again, I'd be paying for it. I'm like, I'm actually bleeding. My knees have lost skin. My hands are messed up. And all you're worried about was 20 bottles of milk. About six months later, I managed to uh, get a, another milk run position a lot closer to home. In fact, it was my own neighbourhood. And that was great because it wasn't in the hills. And I had a great boss. She was awesome. And in fact, I enjoyed the job so much that I'd stay around afterwards on my own time and help tidy up and, and organise things. And, and that ended up paying dividends. I got the perfect route in our milk run. You see, there were three different ways that we could go. And, and eventually, I was getting the prime one. It was, it was amazing because Dunedin has a Cadbury's factory. And, and lots of previously had a Cadbury's factory. And lots of people worked in there and, and in fact the, one of the houses on my milk run the owners of the house worked at the Capri's factory and normally you take the tokens and leave the milk and, and take off but if we knew that if we took the milk into the house and knocked on the door and handed them their milk we'd walk away with a bag full of chocolates it was a great deal not only was I getting paid $5 an hour to get fit awesome pay rate uh, I was getting chocolates. And the cool thing was, my particular route went past the only corner store, dairy we call it, in the, in the whole run. And I could go in and, and, and spend 50 cents and buy massive bags full of lollies. It was awesome, because back then, you know, 50 cents was huge money. And, and I, I, so I loved it. I was just, I'd arrive home so hyped up on sugar that didn't care that I'd just run a few kilometres. It was awesome. You know what? They were both exactly the same role. But my experience was very, very different based on who my boss was. Now, how we relate to the boss colours everything. Fear the boss and we hate the work. Trust him and you love it. How you feel about the master of the universe does the same. View God like a prison guard and your heart will be full of dread. 
Believe that God values you like a musician does their dream instrument. Grace, if you had unlimited money, is, is there a violin that you would love to own? Is there something like, it, you could have any violin, is there like an instrument that would be like the ultimate for you to have? Yeah? Like, a, what would it be? Uh, sorry? The best. the best, right. When we understand that God views us like a musician does their dream or their prized instrument. Imagine a hundred-year-old violin that's just, oh. God sees us like that. God sees us with a heart that said, you are my prized possession. If we understand that God sees us like that, our heart will be filled and we will live in our strengths with joy. Today I want to look at a story that many of you will know very well. It's a story I've preached on numerous times and I'm coming at it from a different angle today. It's in the book of Matthew in chapter 25. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to follow along with me, but I will be reading all the, the verses. So It's the parable of the talents. And it starts like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man travelling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. I, there's some things that I, I, I kind of understand straight away from that. So, so it's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And, and here's this master who understands his servants. He knows their abilities. I don't know whether it's because they've been with him a long time or they had different responsibilities in his household, but he's gathered three of them together and he says, I'm going to leave you with something, a gift, and then I'm going to go away and I want you to do something with it and one day I'm coming back. What, what are you going to do with what I've given you? So he places five talents, two talents, and one talent according to the servant's ability. Sometimes... I think we miss the significance and the depth of what is actually being communicated here. We understand the word talent means skill. If you've been around church world for a while, you'll understand that we're actually they're talking about money. A talent for them was the, the largest unit of accounting in Greek currency. So a talent represented 10,000 denarii. And a denarii or denarius was representative of a fair day's work. So if a farmer who owned a field would go into town and said, I need workers for the day to come and work on my field, and at the end of the day, he'd give them one of these coins. So one talent represents 10,000 of these days' pay. So I've done the math. So to work out the value of a talent, we multiply our daily wage by 10,000. So let's make some assumptions. Let's assume that you work full-time. Let's assume that you earn $60,000 a year and you have four weeks annual leave. To, to make the math simple for me, because I'm not a math teacher, like some people in the room, to make it simple and tidy, let's assume that we're not factoring in uh, public holidays and things like that. So in a year, you will work 240 days. All right. So in 12 months... 240 days, so we take $60,000, our annual salary, and we divide it by the number of days that we work, 240, and that will give us our daily wage. Anyone know what that number is? 
Okay, it's 250. I just thought would give room for the math teacher to jump in and say, I did that calculation a long time. <laughs> I'm joking, Steve. Sorry, mate. 250. So one denarii is worth $250, the basic day's wage, and they're communicating that one talent is worth 10,000 of those. So 10,000 times 250 is how much? $2.5 million. One talent is representative of $2.5 million. That's a significant amount of resource that the owner has placed in the hand of the servants. So don't feel sorry for the guy who got one talent. Don't think how unfair is it that that guy got five talents when the servant gets one talent. Imagine for a moment that three people in this room win the lottery. And one of you wins $12.5 million. One of you wins $5 million. And the third of you, well, I'm sorry to say, you only win $2.5 million. Who do we feel sorry for in that scenario? Not one of them. I'm sorry, I am not feeling sorry for the person who only won $2.5 million. This parable is not about who gets less from God, who drew the short straw, who missed out. And it's so easy in our insecurities to read ourselves into that story and say, well, we're the one talent person and didn't we miss out? Look at what everyone else is doing and look what everyone else has got and I've just got one talent. Do you know that 10,000, the number that the talent represented, 10,000 days work is the equivalent of about 41.2 years of your working life. For a Jew in first century Rome, that was probably their entire working life. In other words, God, the master, has given the talent to the, the lowest one here, the guy that gets one talent, an entire lifetime's worth of gift, of resource. He's placed in the hands of his servant. And the danger in, in interpreting a parable is that we can often read ourselves into the wrong character and misunderstand what it's talking about. Because remember, this parable starts, the kingdom of heaven is like. The first thing to realise is God has given you an overwhelming deposit of gifting. He's invested heavily in all of us. Some might get five, others might get one, but the good news is no one misses out. Why does it happen that way? Well, I don't know. I don't know how God made those decisions. I don't know how the master in the story did, because it's a parable. We can't go and look at history and investigate who the people were. They don't exist. It was a made-up story. But it's illustrating a point. I don't know how God makes those decisions about who gets the five and who gets the two and who gets the one. I don't, I don't, I'm not privy to that. If it was me choosing, I'd probably choose a little different. But that's the reality. But I've learned something. I, I recognised something when I was preparing this. The supermarket business is a really large business in Australia. And in that business, there is a whole range of roles that people play. The person who is working at the checkout, scanning and taking money, has a skill set that enables them to do that job. They probably don't have the skill set to run the entire company, but someone does. But if that person running the company is not doing their job and the checkout person is not doing their job, the business will fail. We need 
all people at all levels using the skills and the giftings that they have in order for the whole thing to work. So the first lesson from this story for us is this. Thank God for all that He has poured into you, all that He has created you to do. It is significant. Even if we're one talent people, that is significant. It's an entire lifetime worth of finance that God had poured into that person in the story. God elevates us by matching our unique abilities to our custom-made assignments. Remember the verse at the very beginning when I talked about the good works that God has prepared and or planned long ago for us? It's about aligning the things that He's placed in us with the stuff that He's asked us to actually do. So the parable then becomes about the response of the servants to the Master, of the workers to what has been placed in their hand. Verse 16 in the parable, the first two servants reward their master's trust. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. So the first guy, he went out and he bought investment magazines and he started watching the business channel and he was doing graphs, tracking stocks and working out things. He got a reliable tip. He made his decision that paid off and he doubled his money. He pulled it off. The second guy, well, he negotiated lower prices on some goods and he bought some things and he traded those things and he managed to be able to double his money. Were there any guarantees that they would do that? Absolutely not. They could have traded their millions into cents. They could have lost a lot. But they took a risk, they stepped out and they did what their master asked them to do. They went for it. And the master commended them when he returned. He applauded the five-talent man and he said this, verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Do you realise this parable is actually a glimpse to the end of history? Because when Jesus returns, according to 2 Peter 3.10 in the message, the earth and all its works will be exposed to the scrutiny of judgment. There's an accounting coming like the master did with the servants. What have you done with what I've given you? And the words that we're told at the end when Jesus welcomes us into glory, into eternity, when that day happens, well done, good and faithful servant. The same words that we're hearing here. Do you know it doesn't say good and flashy? It doesn't say good and famous. It doesn't actually say good and fruitful It just says faithful. Have we actually been faithful with what God has placed in our hands? Maybe your parents never praised you or your teachers always criticised you, but the good news is God will applaud you. And to have God call us good, that counts because only he can make bad sinners good. And only he can make the frail fruitful. So the master turns to the second guy and he says to him the exact same words. Verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Enter the joy of your Lord. Notice something here. There's a different 
amount of fruit. There's a different result. One guy had five, made five. One guy had two, made two. There's a disparity in what they've returned to their master, but the reward or the words from the master were identical to both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You did what I asked you to do. You used what I placed in your hand. It was different levels, but it was the same outcome. Be faithful with what God has placed in your hand. Don't long for the 12 and a half million if you have 5 million. Say thank you God for what you do have and then put it to work. The only mistake is not putting it to work, not taking a risk, not being faithful with what you have in your hand. And that's what the one talent man did. It says in verse 24, 25, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you had not sown, gathering where you had not scattered seed, and I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Contrast the reaction of the third servant to the first two. The first two invested, the last one buried. The first two went on a limb. The third one, he hugged the trunk. The faithful servants went and traded. The fearful one went and dug. He made the most tragic and the most common mistake of giftedness. He failed to benefit the master with his talent. All people have talent, but how many people have invested their gifts to profit the master? Many of us might discover our what, and a few lucky ones fall into the the where to use their talent, but the why. Why did God pack your bag as he did? For what purpose? So that people will love you or admire you or hire you? If the answer to the why question in your life only involves you, you've missed the big reason and you're making the big mistake. Sin, at its ugly essence, confiscates heaven's gift and uses it for selfish gain. C.S. Lewis, famous author and theologian, wrote some incredible words. It'll be on the screen behind me. Sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into us. An energy which, if not thus distorted, would have blossomed into one of those holy acts whereof God did it and I did it are both true descriptions. We need both. We need to use what God has placed in our hands and realise why God has placed it there in the first place. It's not to benefit us. It's not to make us look better or to give us glory or for our reputation to be built. It's to bring glory to the master. We start in a position of loving God. Then we use what he's placed in our hands to love people. So the one talent servant came to the master and in verse 26 and 27, he said, I knew you to be a hard man. The master wouldn't stand for that and brace yourself for the force of the response. You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reaped where I did not sow and gather where I had not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received my own back with interest. What just happened? Why the blowtorch? What we actually discover is the answer is in the missing phrase. The master repeated back to the servant the assessment that the servant gave to the master, but he missed out one crucial thing. Did you know what was missing? When he repeated back, he did not include, I knew you to be a hard man. 
the master didn't repeat the description that he wouldn't accept. You see, the servant had levelled a cruel judgment on the master by calling him a hard man. It's the exact same word that Jesus uses to describe the hard-hearted, stiff-necked, stubborn Pharisees. That's the word that was used to from the servant back to the master. It's the same word the author of Hebrews uses when he begs his people reading it not to harden their hearts. The one-talent servant called his master stiff-necked, stubborn and hard. Do you know that his sin was not mismanagement? It was misunderstanding. It wasn't what he did or didn't do with the talent. It was what he did or didn't do know about the master. Was his master hard? Well, I've read the story and he gave multi-million dollar gifts to undeserving servants. He honoured the two uh, two talent worker as much as the five talent worker. He stood face to face with both at his homecoming and announced before the audience of heaven and hell, well done, good and faithful servant. Was this a hard master? Well, infinitely good, graciously abundant, yes, but hard, no. The one talent servant never actually knew his master and he should have. He lived under his roof. He shared his address. He knew his face. He knew his name, but he never knew his master's heart. And as a result, he broke it. He could have known his master. The other servants knew the master. He could have at least asked them what he should have done with what he had, but he didn't. And in the end, the master instructed this, and I'm reading it from the message translation, get rid of this, play it safe, who won't go out on a limb. Throw him out into utter darkness. Who is this unprofitable servant? Well, if you've never used your gifts from God, for God, you are. If you think God is a hard God, you are. You'll stick your multi-million dollar skill in a coffee can and hide it in a drawer and earn nothing from God. for God. You may use your uniqueness to build a reputation, a retirement, an investment account or an empire, but you will never build God's kingdom. You may know your story, but you won't share his story. Don't be like the wicked servant. Don't just know about God. Don't dwell in his house without ever really understanding his heart. Worship team, you can come join me. It's not too late to seek your father's heart because your God is a good God. Listen to this verse, these verses from Psalm 103, 8 to 13 in the message. God is sheer mercy and grace. He is not easily angered. He's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold nor hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve nor pay us back in full for our wrongs. As high as heaven is over the earth, so strong is his love to those who fear him. And as far as sunrise is from sunset, he separated us from our sins. As parents feel for their children, God feels for those who fear him. Does that sound like a hard neck? Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, stubborn God. It doesn't. He's lavished you with strengths in this life and a promise of the next. Go out on a limb. You won't fail. Take a big risk for God. He won't let you fall. He invites you to dream of the day that you feel His hand on your shoulder and His eyes on your face. He says, well done, good and faithful servant.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org www.cofcpenrith.org